Welcome. I hate this because I can't. Missouri Farm Bureau. This is Eric Bowl, I'm the director, director of public affairs. BJ's trying to ruin my entire program here by talking. <laughs> but this week we're doing a Facebook Live and recording uh, the audio as well to send out on our podcast stream. So, BJ Tanksley, our director of state legislative programs, and Spencer Tuma, our director of national legislative programs, are joining me today. Thanks, guys, for getting together again. Thanks Thank for having us. Even though I, I don't know how to take turns talking. I'm so glad to see you all, even though it's not in person. I know. It's like I've never even, you know, seen you all week on a Zoom call. It's, I see you from the same, with the same background all day, every day on different Zoom calls. It seems like that's all we do anymore. My yeah, Zoom call schedule is very intense. <laughs> Next week's looks crazy. It's yeah. a lot. Well, <laughs> there is a lot going on. It's been a couple of weeks since we've talked and... Uh, in that time, BJ has been extremely busy. I know you have too, Spencer, uh, but BJ's been up on a deadline here with the state legislative session wrapping up just a few days ago. And um, it was a really weird one, BJ, because this year we had the, like right when they were getting into the meat of everything, the shutdown came and they closed down for what, like six weeks basically of no session and then came back and had to get everything they could done uh, in just a couple of weeks time. Um, so yeah, what did we end up coming away with out of that? Yeah, it was a it was a crazy year. All legislative years are different, you know. Sometimes there's drama one way or the other, but this was this was very unique. You know, I don't know I don't know when the last time we podcasted leading into the break, but we were really well positioned on a lot of the issues we were talking about. And Farm Bureau came into the session talking about a lot of issues from agritourism and transportation wildlife pest things like that we we had been having meaningful conversations about all of those things leading into um the spring break you know that's the midway point of session and i think it's it's worth mentioning when you look at the legislative session you you position yourself in the early part to then get things finished up in the second half nobody or very rarely uh does anything other than an emergency get done in the first half and that's because the legislators are also positioning themselves to leverage priorities versus other people's priorities. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the facts of it. So it was a weird year. Um, took about six weeks off, came back with about three weeks remaining. But the other thing that I think is interesting for perspective is remember when they first announced they were coming back, that last, the final partial week of April was to finish the budget and non-controversial issues. The Capitol was, for all intents and purposes, still shut down. And for that week, um, for that first week, they still basically said, please don't come to the Capitol. Um, so really, we ended up with about a week and a half to two weeks of what looked like the last week's session. Um, we did have some successes in those, uh, like I said, talking about a lot of things. You've heard us talk about broadband a lot. We've talked about it on this podcast. The legislature did pass an omnibus broadband bill, and we were happy to see that get done. That included extending the sunset on the broadband grant program, which is something we've been advocating for. We helped to develop it. We talked about when the announcement of the first grants were rolled out. This extended it until 2027, and so that's a significant increase in the, in the sunset and just gives some surety to the program. So we're excited to see that get done. And then the other was um, DEDs, the Department of Economic Development's Neighborhood and Community Improvement District programs. These are programs in which individuals, I want to say communities, but it's groups of people. They don't have to be town A or, or something like that. They can be designed by the members of that area um, to facilitate infrastructure projects. These have been done for sewer projects, for, for other types of infrastructure projects, um, can now be used for broadband expansion. Um, once the governor, if the governor, or we expect the governor to sign the bill, can be used for infrastructure projects uh, relating to broadband. And so people could voluntarily assess themselves to help bring broadband to areas that don't have it. Um, we think that's a, it's a step forward. And the, the thing to keep in mind on that, because nobody wants to have an additional assessment, is the people of that area get to vote whether or not they want to take part in the program. Now, it's a you know democracy, which means if you win the vote, it does move forward. Um, but they get to vote and, ha and have a say in whether or not it happens. Nobody else can force it on them. So we're excited about that. The broadband move was a good one and a positive step forward. Um, the yeah. other one we- but On that, uh, there, there were some downsides too, right? We, 
we're hoping for some general revenue to be allocated directly towards the broadband grant program. But I mean, unsurprisingly, and I, I really can't fault them for this. Um, when, when this whole shutdown thing happened, that just destroyed tax revenue projections and everything that was basically discretionary at all ended up just getting put on the cutting room floor. And so that was one of the things that didn't make it through the final process, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you, when we came into session, the, the, the governor had allocated uh, $10 million to the broadband grant program, which would have been doubling it from the project or program last year. Uh, we had $10 million in the budget leading into spring break. Uh, we were excited to see that. But after the impacts of this, um, the legislature was asked to cut some $700 million out of what they expected the budget to be. And a lot of people are saying that might not even be close to what it, what it eventually has to be cut, I should say. Um, and yes, unfortunately, the broadband grant program was one of the things that was cut. Um, in talking to appropriators, it wasn't all bad on the appropriations front when it comes to broadband because of some of the CARES Act funding. Um, that was um, allocated to the Office of Administration at the state level for broadband expansion. Now, that has some some certain types of buckets and certain types of projects that it can work on. See, it will, I don't expect it to go to the broadband grant program to go to any place in the state, the state. Um, but there was $12 million uh, allocated from, from CARES Act funding to go forward. So unfortunately we were not, but, but we have to be honest about it. If they had have left 5 million in, in funding for the broadband grant program, if additional cuts are made necessary, if we find out that the 700 million really doesn't cut it, that probably would have been eligible for a withhold as well or future budget out, um, you know, reinvestments. So and, I, and it does seem to be some pretty broad um, recognition nationally for the fact that broadband is super important in this uh, time of the shutdown um, because there are so many things that are only happening on the internet now. So. I think that there's a lot of talk on the national level and Spencer, we can get into this too if you want about potential of there being some sort of a, um, a, a stimulus type bill for infrastructure spending and that that may be a big portion of it. And I think that some of the um, counter arguments that people used to make um, are now gonna have a lot more evidence to, to push back against those to show like, here's what, just recently, we just got done with this, or we're still kind of in it, this time where people are needing connectivity and uh, not everybody was able to. So that's, I think, going to long-term maybe be, I don't want to say a, a positive outcome from this virus, but it might draw, shed more light on the, the problem and um, draw some more funding into the, the fix. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say is that's one of the things at the national level that we're, we're working on and talking about and Spencer can talk about it is if there, we'd love to have some more of that funding come down. Yeah, no, I was just going to chime in and say that uh, you're absolutely right. This is a huge conversation going on at the national level. Uh, as we see more people teleworking, as we people try, see people moving their education online, uh, there are a lot of proposals floating around in Congress, um, and I'll talk a little bit later on about the phase four um, stimulus bill, but I do anticipate there is going to be some money for broadband in that legislation whenever it does come about. Um, and I think that's something that we've really tried to, you know, Missouri Farm Bureau has been demonstrating the importance of rural broadband for several years, certainly since I've been on staff and even before. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, it took something like this happening to really um, get more attention on this issue. But we do think it's important and it does seem like there are a lot of constructive conversations going on in the broadband space. Yeah. Um, also, just uh, to note, we have a lot of people watching on Facebook Live and some people are commenting. Uh, Diane Davis says the Internet and cell service in rural areas around Martinsburg, Missouri is awful. I think there's a lot uh -huh. of people around the state that share your My sentiment. husband's from Montgomery County, Diane, so I get it. <laughs> yep, we know this is true. Um, and if anybody has any comments or questions that you'd like us to address, just go ahead and put those on the comments on Facebook. I'm trying to keep an eye on those as we talk. Uh, but and that was one of the encouraging things about the broadband conversation late in session was there was a lot of talk that, you know, this is a necessity even from people that hadn't been, you know, outspoken advocates for broadband in the past. And it's not just a rural thing. It's also urban areas that are less served than others. And 
And as we start talking about kids going back to school and things like that, it may be even more important than we had anticipated. So I know there's a lot of people looking to see where assets are and where they're not um, and how we can get more people connected. Yeah. If people didn't get it before, I think they get it now. So yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, BJ, what else was on the, um, the, the result list from the <laughs> session? Well, the other good, the other major good on the, uh, on the results side was um, SJR 38, the bill to bring redistricting back to a vote of the people. Redistricting is something that Missouri Farm Bureau has been talking about since 2018. We're talking about it leading into the 2018 election. I know Eric and I, we talked about it several times, taking, taking questions and, and detailing the changes in the redistricting process that were passed by what was labeled as Clean Missouri Amendment 1 in 2018. This will send a redistricting process back to a vote of the people and largely goes back to a system similar to what we had in the past, which does have a bipartisan commission um, tasked with drawing um, districts that are contiguous and protect communities of interest, as well as competitiveness is still on the list of priorities. It's just not above other things. Um, keeping communities of interest together, protecting minorities, and drawing concise and uh, compact and contiguous districts are above competitiveness. And I think that's the right ranking. We do wanna see competitive districts, but um, as we tried to explain back in 2018, drawing a competitive district in some areas of the state will look in ways like pie shapes or long narrow districts where we're dipping into urban areas and out into less populated rural areas just because of the recent voting patterns. Um, and we don't want to see that because the truth is, Farm Bureau, we don't care Republican, Democrat, or other who wins the election, but we've always been interested in rural representation, and I don't think this is just about rural representation. Those pie-shaped or long, narrow districts erode both representations. They erode for that rural area as well as the urban area, and that's our concern. That's why we'll be talking about a lot over the summer about the need to vote yes for that amendment um, and excited to see that get done. Not an easy conversation, um, but does a lot for the state. And not that everything's right in the way, there's never anyone that's 100% thrilled with the way any district is drawn. That's just the fact of it. Nobody loves that. You know, they say we're more similar to County A than County B. Why are we with them? Everybody always has that issue, but this will, this will exasperate the problem. Um, and, and like I said, for Missouri Farm Bureau, this isn't about party. This isn't about party interest. This is about rural representation and making sure that those areas continue to be represented. Yeah. PJ, oh, sorry, Eric. No, just real quickly, the um, the way that the Clean Missouri Amendment, Amendment 1 um, changed the redistricting process essentially made it so that partisanship is really the only thing that matters. It's so weird that they tried to sell it as getting partisanship out of it because it actually made it so that Partisanship is all we look at, or yeah. the main thing we look at in drawing a district, and we want it to be partisanly competitive. And I just don't get how that is more important uh, than making sure that a county is together, if possible, all the people who have lived together for hundreds of years and the, the families that have um, you know, grown up next to each other being represented by a similar people. Why, why wouldn't that make more sense to be a higher priority and trying to ensure a particular political party has a, a more competitive advantage than they did before. You know, that just doesn't make any sense. I think and I also, just, I also just think it's short-sighted. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, I'm not that old, but I remember a time when everybody from certain areas of the state was from an opposite party of where they are now. Yeah. I'm of the belief that this current voting pattern will stay the same forever either. I, I think that that's, it's short-sighted. I don't think it's a great idea. And like you said, prioritizing competitiveness, uh, artificially inserting competitiveness into some of these districts is, is not good. I, mean, I want them to be competitive too, but you can look, there's going to be some competitive primary elections to see who best represents the people of that district. There's still chances for competitiveness. Not everybody's ideas are the same just because of what party they represent. Um, and, and so there is still competitiveness out there. Let's not, let's not say that. It's not just sign your name up and you win. 
BJ, I know there's been a lot of talk. And so from my perspective, right, it's very clear. A bipartisan commission is way less politicized than a politically appointed state demographer, which is what was established in the first first system. But a lot of the reasons, if we go back, that clean Missouri uh, even had a fighting chance is because of some of the ethics reform changes that were included with it. So how does bill that's or the amendment that's going to be on the ballot this time differ from what was originally passed so it had um the original bill was a revolving door which is how quickly politics mm-hmm. start to lobby the legislature it had gift it had a gift reduction so it allowed five dollar gifts um to the legislature from lobbyists or principals and then it also had campaign contribution um, re- reductions This is a complete gift ban, so no gifts whatsoever is included in this, as well as a further reduction in campaign contributions. So it does have some others to clean up some things. Um, I think there was a lot of question about what did a $5 gift mean? It made it um, almost a complete gift ban, which is more of what Farm Bureau has been doing since this past, not that we did a lot of gifts anyway, but a complete gift ban is actually cleaner than this $5 thing. There's more questions than there are answers. Um, and I think it was just a little bit misleading to say, oh, we're passing a gift ban when actually there's unlimited $5 gifts. A, a lobbyist could spend as much as they want as long as they do it $5 at a time. Um, and then some campaign uh, spending or campaign contribution reductions are included in this as well. Um, so excited to talk about it. But I don't think this campaign is going to hide from the fact this is about making sure that people are represented by people from their area. Um, and not diluting that. The thing that this isn't just for rural representation. There's a lot of people from urban centers that feel the exact same way. Uh, that that conversation was not an easy one for 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 urban members either. Uh, talking about how do you find competitiveness in, in districts that overwhelmingly vote Democrat at this point um, to dilute that vote uh, concerned them greatly as well. So so yeah. we're we're and, excited to see it. And I think that's a good point to say. The reason that the, um, say, the urban core in St. Louis votes Democrat is not because they've been gerrymandered to do so. It's not because the districts are drawn so poorly. It's because people in that area agree with the Democratic Party and want them to be represented by them. Same in rural areas to the other way around. And so I think it's a fake problem in a lot of ways that's been made up. Like, it's really one party wanting to become more competitive. And so asking, hey, could you draw a map that makes me more competitive? Not by changing people's minds, but by trying to artificially draw them into a district that helps them out because they aren't winning at the ballot box. I just don't think there's reasons. Completely agree. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could draw districts. No one's ever going to be happy with every single one of them. It is difficult to divide things up. But like you were saying, Eric, if, if you look at a precinct map, of how people vote, that it looks a lot like the representation of the state. Right. It, it, and that's not because that's how somebody drew the districts. That's because that's how people in certain areas vote. I can't explain it all, but that's just the way it is. And, and to artificially try to dip into that, we've talked about it a lot, but I, I, I don't think that's, a, I, we don't think that's the right way to go. Yeah, so what else uh, came out of the legislative session this year? So they did, they did a lot um, relating to health care. Uh, there was some tort reform measures to protect those. There was, there was a lot of work done for the health care industry, talking about our hospitals and caregivers across the state. You know, they dealt with a lot. And so the legislature did do a lot on their behalf in those last few weeks to support those industries. There were some insurance things to help pay for COVID testing, um, for some health care things, some tort reform issues. Um, so there was a lot done in that last in those last few weeks. There was also an elections bill passed to allow absentee voting uh, for those that are at the high risk categories. So um, further in age, as well as certain health conditions, uh, for people that don't want to have to physically go to the polls, um, they will be able to vote absentee easier than they had been in the past for the next two. Now this expires when we're outside of this COVID window. Um, It isn't an ongoing absentee voting bill, um, but it does allow for some flexibility for people who don't need to be in crowds waiting in lines uh, for the polls come August or November. So those were a few things. Um, There was a a lot of things that we talked about a lot here um, that we didn't get done. And that's just the reality of it with a few weeks left. Some of those were uh, victims of having the cut and some of them 
uh, not, not quite as much. The biggest one, the biggest letdown for us was the eminent domain uh, reform legislation that would have said that merchant transmission lines have to freely negotiate with people to get easements rather than having the power of eminent domain. Um, that bill was passed by the House early in session. The House made it a priority to get that bill done. It passed committee in the Senate early in session as well. Um, and we were really preparing to put a full court press for that bill. Unfortunately, with having so much time away, we weren't able to do some of the things on the ground that we had planned to as well. But when we came back, we did get it one more shot where it did come to the Senate floor in the form of an amendment. Senator Burns Getter actually offered that um, language on the floor. Um, and pretty quickly, a group of um, Democrats, as well as a few Republican Party senators stood up and filibustered the bill for approximately four to five hours. And with just a few days left, it was the Wednesday of the second to last day, but time was short and, and the, they had a handful. I mean, it was 10 plus senators saying, hey, we're not gonna allow this bill to move forward. Um, and ultimately it didn't. I think it's really unfortunate. Um, what, what's lost in the conversation is the impact on those people that are giving up land that, that they're not gonna be able to freely negotiate with. There's a lot of talk about the money, the jobs being created and things like that. But what's, what's being forgotten is this company may make a ton of money and may sell cheap power, but they're doing that partially because they're getting the land from Missouri citizens as cheap as possible. Um, and we know when you compare what they're claiming to going to be offering to landowners, it's a fraction of what Freeland negotiated similar infrastructure pays. Uh, and that's what we've been trying to say for several years. Unfortunately, the other side has a team of lobbyists and, and they spent a lot of time in the Capitol and, and we weren't able to put the full court press. We really needed to have people in the Capitol rallying for this one issue. We did that in 2019. We planned it in 2020. Unfortunately, we planned it for early April and early April was a, a scary time and rightfully so people were at home. Um, but without being able to put that emotional press on, I think it really hurt our efforts there. Uh, but we were really, I'm going to be honest, very, very let down that we weren't able to come to a vote on that. Um, really hope to, and so did other property rights supporters in the Capitol. Um, so we tried. We tried hard on that and unfortunately didn't get it done. Another one of the issues we were excited about for um, this session was the biodiesel standard for the state of Missouri, the Missouri Made Fuels Act. Um, you know, rural Missouri is hurting right now. Um, our farm economies, our rural economies, they were hurting before the shutdown. You know, crop prices weren't high. Um, and the Missouri Made Fuels Act would have helped with our fuel independence. What's better than growing fuel right here in the state of Missouri? It would have helped our biodiesel and our soy industry, as well as our rural economies by bringing jobs to those areas. Um, and unfortunately, that bill was able to get out of the House. Um, and, and again, late in the year, the Senate um, refused to bring that up. So there were some missed opportunities, um, but there's always going to be when we're dealing with such a weird time. Yeah. Well, it was definitely a strange year. I guess the um, biggest question I have once the session ended is, is that the end of session for this year? Or are we going to see some special sessions called? Um, what's your sense of um, the possibilities of the governor calling a special session or more than one? Yeah, um, I, think, I think we're likely to see a special session, if not more than one. I think the real question is, well, there's two questions. Is it only focused on the budget or will it be larger than that? And number two, how quickly do we see that? You know, just I think earlier this week, the governor in one of his press conferences um, alluded to the fact they're going to they're expecting to have to make another round of major cuts. Now, what gets cut with that? I don't know. For political reasons and, and just to have the buy-in from the legislature, the governor would probably rather be a partner with the legislature in doing that rather than vetoing budget bills or just having to do uh, single-handed withholds. So I would assume we will be called in at least to talk about the budget. Now, will that call be expanded to other things? Uh, that probably largely has to do with what happens at the federal level. Is there federal money coming down? Are there other things we need to be able to facilitate? Um, but I'd say we will be back before the regular scheduled September veto session. Um, the question is how quick and how big of a call is it? And what's, what's the procedure for that? Does the governor have the power to just fully call any special session whenever he wants to? And does it have to be limited to a specific issue? 
Now, there's multiple different procedures. I believe the House and the Senate can come together on a vote to do it themselves. They can call themselves back in, and as my understanding is one of them, um, but the governor also can call them back into special session. And, and when they do that, they actually can be very prescriptive about what should be involved in that call. Um, I don't know that I've been a part of a special for the budget. There's been specials for economic development purposes, uh, and I've seen some other specials, but I haven't seen one just for the budget. But I, with this being such a large cut, it wouldn't surprise me. And I think there was some whisper in the hall that that may be happening. Um, speaking of budget, there was one, there was a couple highlights in the budget, one being the broadband money from the CARES Act. The other was we had um, a group of senators who worked together to facilitate $20 million in CARE Act, CARES Act funding um, to go towards our Missouri meat processors. Uh, we know that meat processing was greatly hit by this, uh, the, by the situation, and this is going to help facilitate them as well. So what's good for our processors is also good for our growers out there. So we're excited to see that um, Department of um, Agriculture will be um, helping to develop that program to get that money out to our medium and small producers, our processors out there. So what's good for them is good for our producers. So we're excited about that. And we're appreciative of those who worked on it. We know there was a lot of talk and some of our processes are getting back up and rolling, but none of them are at full speed. Um, so we're, we're, we're looking to help them in any way we can. Yeah. Well, and if, um, again, if anybody has any questions you'd like us to address or any comments, go ahead and stick those in the comments on the Facebook feed on Facebook live. I know there's a lot of people watching us right now and a few comments coming in. So, uh, let us know if there's anything you want to know more about. We'll try to address it before we wrap up. Um, Spencer, I know that you've been extremely busy during this time. Uh, yeah. There's so much going on with the uh, congressional you know, aid packages that they're passing and mm -hmm. um, continuing to tweak and try to, uh, to produce rules uh, from the agencies to actually implement them. So yep. um, we have just recently, in the past couple of days, really seen some more, a lot more information about what USDA is planning on um, for the CFAP program, I believe it is. Yep, that's um, right. Tell us about CFAP. Uh, well, there are a lot. I actually have it right here. Of course, yes. That way, if we get any, uh, it is, I have highlighted pink in here, so that should not surprise anybody. Um, but yeah, thanks, Eric. USDA did announce earlier this week uh, on Tuesday the details of the, uh, or most of the details, I guess I should say, of the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, or CFAP. Just for a quick refresher, in April, on uh, late March, early April, Congress passed what was called the CARES Act. Some people are calling that the Phase Three Bill. Um, that bill provided direct money to USDA through a general account and then also through the Commodity Credit Corporation to provide direct assistance to farmers who are suffering impacts due to the pandemic. Um, some of that money was specifically for livestock, dairy, specialty crops, and local food systems. Uh, and then some of that funding is also gonna be used for um, some of our, USDA calls them non-specialty crops, but they're really row crops, corn, soybeans, cotton, and the like. Um, so FSA, is going to be administering the CFAP program starting on Tuesday, May 26th. So just the day after Memorial Day here coming up, just right around the corner. Um, if you are a farmer or rancher, you are pretty much eligible to apply for this program without very many requirements. Um, and there are 66, I believe, but if my count is correct, um, different commodities or classifications of livestock production that are actually eligible for this program. So it's a very large uh, program. It's worth about $16 billion in total. Um, and your payment rate is going to be dependent upon your commodity. So um, livestock producers are calculated one way. Hog production is calculated a different way. If you have corn or soybeans, those are calculated at different rates as well. Um, so definitely, you know, get in touch with your county FSA office. I will say um, county FSA offices sometimes do not have very much staff, and this is a very large program to administer. Um, so please be patient with your USDA county staff. Um, they are uh, learning this program at the same speed that all of us are as well. They didn't have any advanced heads up, so um, they're learning this right along with us. Um, it is a pretty complicated 
program. Um, there's just a lot of different calculations that go into it. Sounds like the forms that they're going to require as documentation are going to be pretty basic. If you're a current FSA customer and you've enrolled in those programs before, it's very likely that you've already completed most of the necessary paperwork for this program. Um, however, you are probably going to have to provide some documentation to prove any loss or inventory of product. Um, if you're a livestock producer uh, or maybe a specialty crop producer, you probably have not had much interaction with FSA. If you actually go, uh, you can get a jumpstart on the paperwork. You can go to farmers.gov slash CFAP. So farmers, F-A-R-M-E-R-S dot gov, G-O-V. I almost had to look at my paper to be sure I spelled that right. Farmers.gov slash CFAP, C-F-A-P. And um, they actually have the forms available for download. So you can actually go ahead and fill those out um, and print them and then just make an appointment with your local FSA office. As a reminder, all county FSA offices are currently closed to foot traffic. So you'll need to call in advance in order to get a, an appointment time so that they can visit with you about this. But I would really encourage you to go online and take a look at those forms. Um, there are several that you'll need to fill out in order to have everything you need to get started. Yeah, that was very basic overviews. And, and like you say, I think that, um, well, our president, Blake Hurst, mentioned this um, on a recent call that we were on. They all run together. I can't remember what it was, but um, he was saying that he feels like the row crop producers are probably going to be pretty easy to get into this program because they're pretty used to working with FSA on these type of government uh, mm -hmm. programs. The real concern is more about those livestock producers having to initiate a relationship that they don't usually do a lot with um, and find, you know, find the time to schedule a meeting or whatever it is FSA is doing to actually sit you down and sign you up for, um, for this program. So really, if you are on the livestock side of things and haven't really been involved a lot with FSA in the past, this is something to not wait on. Um, try to get yeah. sooner rather than later, just to make sure you'll be able to go find all the paperwork they need and whatnot, because um, you don't want to miss out on, on the program. One thing, Eric, um, that I do want to mention, I, I would love to talk numbers. If there's somebody in the comments who has a question about numbers, I'm glad to go into that. Uh, but because there are 66 different ways that the payment rate is calculated. I won't go into all of them. Um, but one thing we were really concerned about and that we were actually pleased to see changed is when this program was initially reported, it reported that there was going to be a cap of $125,000 per commodity uh, whenever you're applying for the program. You know, we have a lot of businesses, particularly in the livestock sector, uh, that have multiple owners. There may be a family business and they're structured in a way where they have multiple owners. Um, USDA did take a look at that and is going to allow for multiple owners to be accounted for when it comes to looking at those payment limitations. Uh, if you've been involved in farm programs before, you're probably very familiar with payment limitations, but um, for those particularly livestock producers who are structured in a way where they have multiple owners, this was a really big problem because um, they weren't going to be eligible to get uh, an equitable share of those dollars as if they were not structured in that way. So um, hopefully that has been an issue that's been mostly resolved for some people. Hey, Spencer, I've heard something about a, a breakdown in the payouts that they're going to try to make sure that there's money for all. Uh, there's going to be a percentage given up front yep. later on. That's something you may want to explain. Yeah, good question, BJ. So um, the payment that you're eligible for when they calculate it by USDA, the first payment that comes to you is only going to be 80% of that total to ensure that USDA doesn't have a cash flow issue coming in the coming weeks. They are due to get some additional funding into their accounts in late June. Um, but the reason there's that split is so that they can ensure that they get all those initial applications paid. And then that extra 20%, well, it's not extra, it's just the additional 20%. It will go ahead and come at a later date. So um, another question, um, you mentioned like a split and it made me think of cutoffs. Um, one concern we've heard a lot about this program is in the livestock sector, particularly in the cattle industry, uh, there is a different payment for if you sold cattle in the first quarter of this year 
versus if you held your cattle in inventory. Um, there is currently a cutoff date for whether you get the sold rate or the inventory rate. And if you sold cattle after that date, you don't get the sale rate. Uh, we've heard from a lot of people. We know this is a problem. We have already been in communication with USDA about this. Um, we are hopeful that Congress is going to recognize this as a problem as well uh, and take steps to address that in the future. Uh, but definitely rest assured, I know I've had several calls, texts, emails about that. Uh, we are extremely aware of it. We know it's an issue and, and we're working on it to do everything we can to fix it. Well, yeah, because prices are still low. I mean, the problem yeah. was then is still now and a, a livestock is a long-term investment. It's not that you chose not to buy in January. You've had this animal in hand for a long time. Uh, so yeah, that makes total sense and hopefully they can find an answer for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the sale date on this program is if you sold cattle between January 15th and April 15th, you're eligible for a much higher payment rate. If you held on to your cattle trying to get a better price, as you mentioned, uh, because the markets are still really, really poor as far as cattle prices go, um, if you sold cattle, if you got a, a decent price on April 21st, it still wasn't great, but you still feel like you needed to sell, you, you don't get to take advantage of that sale rate. And, and that's certainly an issue that we've already identified with the program. And, and we're working on it, trying our to make sure that the people who can make those decisions are well aware of the problem that causes. Yeah, well, that's definitely a, something that doesn't economically make a lot of sense. So hopefully they'll be able to find an answer to that. One of the other, I guess the last big topic that we'll talk about is another issue affecting livestock producers dramatically. Um, and that is potential uh, collusion and problems with the packing industry. There's a lot of complaints about that right now. Um, a lot of different accusations being thrown around and we don't have enough data to prove anybody right or wrong. And so hopefully we'll be able to get to the bottom of that. Um, Spencer, I know that you've been doing some work on that to get some more information and learn more about uh, what the situation really is. Right. That's a very good point, Eric. I'm really glad you brought that up. So um, just a little bit of background, if you're not familiar, last year there was a packing plant fire in Holcomb, Kansas at a Tyson plant. Uh, really threw beef markets uh, into a frenzy for a couple of weeks. Uh, subsequent to that fire, USDA opened an investigation into packer concentration in the livestock industry as a whole. Uh, unfortunately, we did not see the results of that investigation prior to COVID-19 happening. Uh, and we saw a very similar reaction in the marketplace. In fact, we're still seeing that reaction, particularly as processing plants uh, struggle to stay online. We've had some plants closed. We've had some ramp down their capacity. So USDA expanded their investigation into packer concentration. Uh, our message on that has been, we need to see those results. We want the, the investigation to be conducted thoroughly, but we really need the results of that as soon as possible so we can get an idea of what exactly we are dealing with. Congresswoman Hartzler and Senator Hawley have both been very vocal on this issue. Um, Senator Hawley has also asked for the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission to take a look into this. And the president has also indicated that he would like the Department of Justice to take a look as well. You know, there's a lot of legislative proposals that are getting introduced right now um, that sound like something that could really cause a lot of structural change in the livestock market. Um, and Missouri Farm Bureau is very open to that conversation. We recognize this is a huge problem. At this point, we have not endorsed any particular legislative solution. And I, I wanna address why, because I think um, that helps in the context of this whole conversation. So we as an organization have a policy book and we take positions on things based on our member adopted policy. We have policy that we're open to this conversation, but we don't have a specific legislative solution that we've totally gotten behind. We have now asked the University of Missouri College of Agriculture, Food and Natural Resources to take a look at all of these different legislative proposals that exist uh, and to take a, also take a look at administrative things that exist within the livestock industry to really get an idea of what the economic impact of these proposals is going to be. 
we really want to be sure that if we're going to make structural changes in the livestock market, that they are going to be long-term solutions to the problems that we're seeing. There are so many issues and producers absolutely have every grounds to be upset about what's gone on, but we definitely need to think in the long term about how we want to solve these problems um, because we, there's so much coming at us right now that it can be really hard to sift through um, what is really causing the problem and what might just be something that sounds like a good idea and then maybe doesn't have the best impact. So um, we've sent a letter, like I said, to the University of Missouri on that. We're anxiously awaiting the results of that. They've been in communication with us um, and fully intend to come through on that request. Um, our congressional delegation has also indicated that they are very interested in seeing that research and working with us on any legislative solutions that we can come up with. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's, I think that's, you, you really addressed that well. And there's so many things that we just don't know yet. So hopefully we'll be able to learn some real details. Um, you don't want, you know, people keep talking about with the virus and the shutdown, that you don't want the cure to be worse than the disease. Um, yeah. You know, because of inadvertent, um, you know, unforeseen consequences of what your new policies may be. And that's why we wanna make sure that if we're gonna fix this, we need to fix it right um, and make sure that we know what we're getting into. It never, you know, for producers, from a producer standpoint, it doesn't make sense when my price is going down, but the price that I buy it for continues to go up. That doesn't look good. Um, and hopefully through this, we're able to find some answers. At the, at the state level, we were supporting a resolution to uh, show us the results of, of the investigation into the fire and the reaction. Um, it's really unfortunate at the federal level that we haven't seen that. I mean, it's a long yeah. time from that situation. And, and there's a lot of people asking for answers from that. And like you said, this react, it's not the same symptom or the same cause, but it's the same symptoms we're seeing from it. So, and a lot of people are talking about, you know, the Packers in the middle and that kind of thing. And, and hopefully we're able to find some solutions that work better. Uh, one of the things that this situation's brought about at the state level, because of shortages, both at the grocery store and the situation we're seeing for our producers, is a renewed conversation of bringing processing in a greater extent to the state of Missouri. Uh, so yeah, we're excited yeah. about that conversation and going to be talking about that with legislative leaders and state leaders. That's another thing the university's been actively involved in. There's been a lot of studying the issue and what has to be done, what needs to be done to be able to um, support major processing here in the state. Um, but there's a renewed interest in that. And, and this situation, one of the positives that's come from it is um, it's brought a renewed interest from the customer side. Um, that's always been one of the things you have to, you can, we have all the cattle here we need, but we have to have a dedicated customer base. Um, I think our grocers and our and our major purchasers are more interested now when they've seen the supply chains that we have currently do have their own uh, weaknesses. You know, we're so reliant on a uh, global market and an internet and a national market um, that when there's a hole somewhere, it really does affect everybody. And maybe having some more of that processing here at the state level uh, would insure us from that and support our own local markets as well. So um, that's one of the good things that are coming out of this conversation. Hopefully um, some good research uh, can lead us to some positive answers um, for those long-term solutions. And hopefully we're able to continue this conversation in the future. There are, there can be some positives in the long run that come from this. And if you are a consumer looking for local meat products, Missouri Farm Bureau, I would be remiss if we did not talk about it. Um, we have put together a directory of local farmers and um, butcher shops that can sell you meat directly. So beef, pork, chicken, you name it. Um, Eric, how do they find it? Yeah, so just go to the Missouri Farm Bureau Facebook page, which is mofb.org, mofb.org. And it's right there on the front page. Um, it's actually, there's a little um, thing you can click on that says Missouri Meat. And if you go there, there's a database of, it's very simple. It's just uh, the name of the company or the farm, the um, contact information, and maybe their website if they have one. And you can just search for your county. Actually, you can search for anything. You can search for the name of the company and it'll pop, pull it all up there and you can find um, whoever is close to you and go check them out and see if that's a person you wanna do business with and maybe even find a long-term relationship that you can connect with there 
um, I think it's a great opportunity to, to connect with people. This was an idea from Andy Clay, one of our board members just uh, suggested, hey, you know, there's a lot of people out there who can maybe fill some of this demand that we're seeing at the grocery stores that are having trouble keeping meat on the shelves. And we said, sure, let's look into it and put, to, put it together real quick uh, um, and got it out there. I think we've had, we have several hundred entries on it now. It's a big database now. Um, and it's only been out there for like a week. So yeah, definitely a good idea to find someone local to make a connection with and hopefully be able to buy from them for years to come. Definitely. I've seen a lot of people my age who see the empty shelves on the grocery store and they're like absolutely terrified. And that's certainly an understandable reaction, but everybody I've tried to talk to, I've tried to frame it as don't make it a fearful thing. Try to think about it as an opportunity to get to know a local producer in your area. Um, because there are a lot of people out there who have meat to sell and um, they want to connect with you. They want to share about their farm. And so definitely take the opportunity to do that and, and branch out and learn something new. Yeah, I think the, uh, I think long-term, the good news is on the processing side, I think we're, things are getting better. I think we're starting to see uh, capacities improve. I think that problem is, is going to get better and better. But buying local is always a good idea, and it's also something people are always interested in looking for. It's a way to support your local economy, support your local farmers, and continue that. So I think it's a great process, even though I think it's worth noting that on the grander scale, we are seeing improvements on that front. So I think that is a piece of good news at this point. I mean, some of our largest fears seem to be being able to be avoided, and, and hopefully we're able to continue to move in that positive direction. And I'm, again, uh, this is my day to represent a small butcher, Oberly Meats in Missouri. I don't remember if I wore this on a previous podcast, but I did on a previous Zoom call because someone pointed it out one, a couple of weeks ago. Um, nice. Go support Oberly Meats in St. Genevieve, Missouri. They make great sausage, uh, among other things. Um, but yeah, we are continuing to track a lot of different things. We actually really just kind of scratched the surface on the, all the different things going on right now. Um, the shutdown is seeming to kind of be drawing to an end. Um, things are starting to reopen. Um, for our shutdown quarantine question of the week that we've done a few times here, um, I was thinking about all the things that have been closed um, because of the shutdown. What are you guys most excited about reopening? I think, you know, for me, one of the things would be the, the barbershop because my hair is almost as long as Spencer's now. It's getting there. You know, pretty soon I'll be able to to stroke it uh, while we talk on the on the Zoom call. The bad habit. <laughs> the the nervous tick there. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, getting the barbershop back open would be nice. I was looking the other day. I think it's like it's been almost ten weeks since I had my haircut, and usually I do it like every three or, or every four weeks. So it's getting pretty bad. You uh, should go with the same style as BJ. Yeah, I see BJ's oh. barber is open now, right? <laughs> Somehow you're able to get yours cut. I, I, actually, it's funny. You kind of warned us this may be this, the direction of the question, and I was you stole it from me. I was going to say that my favorite thing that is reopened is the barbershop. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, the, the fun thing is, since going this direction, I save a lot of money on haircuts. So. I bet that's right. You well, don't have to worry about that as much. I'll either have to just go full on hippie or go your direction unless these things reopen soon because I can't really deal with it. I was getting to the point where my sideburns were like past my ears. If I pulled them out, I had to at least tackle that part, but you know, yeah, it's really not a good situation. Well, to be 100% honest, uh, even this, which is kept pretty tight naturally, uh, was getting a little wooly before the <laughs> legislature caught us all off guard and said, hey, we're coming back into session. <laughs> I, I had to charge up the razor and get back to work. So uh, it, was, right. it was a good That's reason right. to get trimmed back up. Looking nice. So BJ, what's yours if it's not the barbershop? Well, it was going to be the barbershop. Honestly, the kids are excited about getting able to get back and do things. Both of my kids have a birthday within the next couple of months, and they're scheduled to have a birthday party at one of the pools in Columbia, Missouri. We live south of Columbia, but they're really hoping, fingers crossed, that the pools are able to open and that we're able to have a birthday party. So that's probably the biggest thing. Although personally, all the things that I enjoy most have been open this whole time. Most of them 
involves some sort of hunting or fishing and there has been no lack of access to those things. So uh, there's not a lot of things I've been missing, although there may be a few things that have been missing. The woods are always open. That yes, is true. Okay, so mine, this makes me sound very shallow. Y'all's are really practical, right? Like kids' birthday parties and haircuts. Like, yeah, I'm excited for my hair salon to open. Of course I am. Clearly, look at this. But the thing I'm most excited for to reopen, and actually they have not reopened yet, even though there's no continuing stay-at-home order in Cole County where Jeff City is, um, but it is Home Goods, the store. <laughs> because I just really enjoy a good afternoon stroll through Home Goods after work. It, and even better, it's like right next to the farm okay. office. So, um, yeah, like I said, it makes me sound shallow, but I'm really ready for Home Goods to open. I've been talking about going to Home Goods with my friends for weeks. Um, I too, BJ, had a quarantine birthday a couple weeks ago, and all I wanted to do was go to Home Goods, and they were still not open. So. I, I think um, Home Goods needs to start selling soap or something so that they can claim that they're essential because there's a lot of businesses that are open. It kind of surprises me that there's any that aren't. Yeah. Not a reason well, to be open. And as I've said many times, you're the youngest old woman I know. So I'm not. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> but Home Goods is closed nationwide, it's not just Missouri. So. Um, anyway. My wife is looking forward to Ikea reopening because all she's been doing since we've been home is making plans for all the things we need to buy. Um, <laughs> we're able to, again. So we're going to put in some office uh, or like some desk furniture for the kids to have a place to do homework and whatever. So anyway. well, It shows you how much of a shut-in I am. I didn't know any place wasn't open. I just... <laughs> well, yeah, I, I said it's kind of interesting, right, that Ikea is closed nationally because Sweden didn't close, right? So. Oh, yeah. It was kind of funny. I really haven't been very many places, BJ, but the other day, for some reason, I had to go to Columbia, and I called my husband on the way home. I said, did you see all this road construction on Highway 63 between Columbia and Jeff City? And he was like, Spencer, you really have not been anywhere. Apparently, it's been going on for months. I had no idea. So, anyway. They just started tearing up all the roads in our neighborhood to put in two roundabouts and widen Nipong. So um, I wish they would have started that about two months ago because there was no would have made a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, all right. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. And uh, we will try to get back together when we get know more about what's happening with all these things we just talked about. But appreciate you guys taking the time to talk with us again today. All right. Thank bye. You. All right. Talk to you soon.